This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. A lot of controversy when the FDA approved an expensive, possibly ineffective drug for Alzheimer's patients last year. Turns out it's become sort of a trend. Greenlighting several contested drugs, so-called accelerated approval. We'll take a closer look. And which of the COVID-induced changes to the workplace is going to be sticking around? And uh, which ones will be tossed out with the masks? We start with the FDA's drug approval process. For years, the FDA was accused of dragging its feet when it came to approving new drugs. But have things swung too far in the other direction? Joining us now is Dr. Jerry Hoffman, professor emeritus at the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being here. So, uh, yeah, some of these that are in the pipeline, are they getting to market way too fast? Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I can't, uh, can't disagree with that. Um, and I, you know, the only thing is the, the notion that it's, it's swung too far, I would suggest that it's swung even further than it always used to be. When you talk about criticism, it's criticized, it's going too slowly. You have to ask who's doing that criticizing. Well, okay. Maybe who, I could who, who is? All right. So, second, so who, well, there's the question. Who is doing the criticizing? Well, I, I think it mostly comes from industry and, and, um, you know, I think if, most of our your listeners would probably think when they think about the FDA would think that it's there to protect us to make sure that new drugs or any drugs are safe. But there is also this tension that you don't want it to block drugs that are really, really effective. In general, though, there's this notion of a, something called the precautionary principle, which is the notion that we shouldn't be approving things until we know that they actually work and that they're actually safe. And the only time you'd make an exception for that is in a crisis. The, there was a tremendous amount of tension around this, around the times when AIDS drugs were first came, coming around and there was some delay in getting them approved. And there was the notion then that there was this catastrophe happening, literally millions of people at risk, dying, and we needed to grease the wheels a little bit so that you could get approval a little bit more quickly. That was a special circumstance. Even in that circumstance, you wouldn't approve something willy-nilly. You needed to have some pretty good reason to believe, A, it's effective, and B, it's not likely to cause a lot of harm. But in general, you don't want to do that until you're sure. And we have lots of evidence of drugs that have been approved without good evidence and ended up causing deaths, lots of deaths. And they're approved also when there are other options that do actually work in some cases, right? So if they're bringing something to market and they're putting it in the uh, shelf with all the other stuff that we know works, because those things have been studied, but here comes a new one that, quote unquote, might work. We're still looking at it, but hey, it's got a chance. And also it's like $36,000 a year. So how about you fork over all that money? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't say it better. But there, there is, right, historically, there's been a certain degree of, uh, for lack of a better phrase, American chauvinism when it comes to, to drugs. Because I remember over the years having various conversations with different physicians about meds that were approved and available throughout all of you know, Western Europe and, and used fairly safely, but had not yet been approved by the FDA here. And so that wasn't a very good system, right? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably overstated substantially, but it is certainly true that you don't want to drag your feet endlessly. You want to move when there's good reason to move. There isn't something else to treat it. There's really good evidence that it's valuable and, and, and beneficial, and there's really good evidence that it's safe. 
in fact, the, it's clear in terms of what's actually happened that we far more often approve things only to then take it back later after they've done a lot of harm than the opposite. And there's overwhelming evidence that in the last 20 years, actually since the Clinton administration sent a, an F, a, a, a note to the FDA telling them to get your move on, your job is to make sure we get things in the pipeline quickly, since that time, it's gotten far, far worse. And since that time, the number of drugs that have been approved and then taken off the market because they were causing harm and killing people has skyrocketed. So when companies go for the approval, do they automatically just try and get the drugs on this faster track rather than the normal one? I mean, shouldn't there be pushback built into the system saying, OK, everyone does this one, track one, multiple studies, peer reviewed. And then if it's a super life saving, uh, you know, let's uh, go for the home run here and give it a chance. Then, OK, you guys can can get on this faster one. But it seems like, you know, large percentages are getting it uh, the other way. And that's not how this is supposed to happen. That certainly is how it seems to me. And I think how it seems to most experts who study this. Uh, yes, we do want to have the ability to make an exception in, under extraordinary circumstances. It's something, you know, the pandemic. There, there's a pandemic and we're really, really worried and we got to sort of be a little bit um, more lenient about if we can get a life-saving drug quickly. But once we've gotten control, then the urgency is much less. So yes, there should be a, a rare case where you can do this uh, rapid approval, but it should not be common. And certainly not when there's no evidence that the drug even works. So do you see a remedy to this anytime in the, in the near future, or is this just going to accelerate? Well, I think the only remedy, you know, so you're asking a much bigger question, and I, I'm not an expert any more than any of us is on how politics in our country works. But it seems to me that there are many things in our government that some of us worry about. And when that's the case, we as citizens have to get together to do something about it because, the, because there's tremendous push, economic push, not to fix this. The drug industry has a tremendous amount of reason to want this to continue as it is. And what's more, they spend more on lobbying than any other industry in the world. They have, I'm not gonna to recite to you all the, the crazy numbers they have of how many lobbyists they have for each Senator and representative, not to mention the White House. So if we think that there's something wrong with what one of our government agencies is doing, it, we as citizens you know, need to stamp our feet and make noise and say, this is wrong. In this particular case where you're talking about this new drug for Alzheimer's disease, um, there, there have been, there's a big campaign by the drug company that makes this to get Congress, to get the Medicare flooded with so-called consumers who want the drug approved. We've made an effort, I, as part of a number of groups, have made an effort to get real citizens to, to let the, F, the Medicare know that this is wrong, it shouldn't be approved. All right, that's Dr. Jerry Hoffman, Professor Emeritus, uh, UCLA Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for talking to us. For over two years now, we've been documenting the radical changes to the workplace brought on by the COVID pandemic. And of course, 
you out there have been living it. We all have. Few events in American history have upended the way we work like this pandemic. So with all kinds of restrictions and precautions winding down, for now at least, will the American workplace snap back to pre-COVID normal or will some of the changes we've experienced be sticking around for good? Our partners at KYW News Radio Philadelphia took a closer look at what could be the end of the traditional corporate hierarchy as we know it. Anchor Matt Leon talked with SAP's Global Vice President, Ray Coriasi. People looking for a difference in the workplace, whether it be more casual, work from home or whatever, were those things that even if they weren't talked about by people like me that we were seeing in January of 2020, but it's just the last two years have just pushed it to a point where it has become a mainstream discussion? Definitely, Matt. As more and more Gen Z specifically enter the workforce, and certainly for those millennials, we we call those digital natives. They are looking for flexibility in their work and life balance. They want to be able to work from where they are. And what happened over the last two years just intensified their ability to navigate, you know, a really kind of flexible work situation. And the employers that can offer that for their employees are definitely going to have a leg up as we go forward. It seems to me, and this is just anecdotally in talking to people and reading stuff, it seems like it's kind of a mixed bag when it comes to employers kind of getting it. You've got some that have obviously rolled with it and realized, hey, as long as the reports are on my desk Friday at five, how it gets there, I don't care. But there seems to be a not small group that really pushing to get people back into the office, even if there's really not a rationale behind why. How much is that going to hurt that second group that's kind of insistent on things being like they've always been when it comes to retaining or drawing in talent? You know, I think you're you're absolutely spot on. The employers are having to really look in the mirror and say, what's most important to us? Is it the outcome or is it the, you know, physicality of their workforce? And it's my feeling and the people that I work with all over the world through our program that, again, the more people have options, perhaps there's a one or two day, I mean, there's a lot of companies that are saying we're going to be in the office on, you know, Tuesdays and Wednesdays or Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then that community building, that organic type of um, collaboration that happens in the office, which is so difficult virtually, can still happen while people continue to have the flexibility. What I think will be a challenge as we go forward is really rigid, you know, you must be in the office on this Monday when, you know, a lot of families have really adjusted their work and life balance with children and elderly parents and all of that to accommodate a lot of different variables. And I think rigid, rigid kinds of frameworks will definitely not be as favorable or attractive to the talent we're trying to attract. You talk about the hybrid and being there to get that kind of feel of teamwork. Is there a concern kind of looking at it from the other end, the places that do allow you to go and do your work wherever, but that there's a disconnect as far as cohesion? And and I say this as someone who has worked from home virtually the entire time since the pandemic, 
you know, how big would be the loss of that cohesion? If, even if you're getting your work done and it's done satisfactorily to even above that, but not having that feeling of a team and kind of feeling like you're on an island. What I've seen around the world is that especially younger people in their career, you know, you've been in your career for quite some time, I'm going to guess. Younger people in their career, they thrive on creativity. They thrive on, you know, that magic of collaboration. We call this the collective intelligence. And you can achieve the collective intelligence virtually. However, it needs to be more structured and more, you know, established versus when you're in an office, it can happen more naturally and organically. So as with every nuance here, Matt, there's no right or wrong, black or white answer. It's just a matter going back to the, the employer. What's the outcome? If you're in a really creative segment of the business, you have a really creative deliverable that you're providing to your customers, there's probably a pretty big business case there to bring people in person to capture some of that collective intelligence that perhaps can be lost in a virtual setting. I'm not saying we can't be creative. We've surely demonstrated we can be creative in a virtual work environment. It's just there's trade-offs and there's, there's different nuances that every employer and employee for that matter needs to evaluate and look at how can I get the best of myself in my job. If you and I talk 20 years from now and look back on this moment, Will it be more watershed for employees or employers? Because I know people who have left careers to go do something else, you know, because they want more freedom or stuff like that. But I would think if you're a manager who can't adjust, who can't adapt and go with it, and you talked about being rigid, you're probably maybe not right now, but eventually it's going to catch up with you and you're going to get washed out, right? Absolutely. And and to answer your question specifically, my view is this is a watershed moment for employers. You know, as the workforce demographics shift, as more and more baby boomers are like, yeah, I'm out, right? But baby boomers are waking up in record numbers now saying, I don't want to deal with this anymore. That retirement starts accelerating. That's going to bring more space for Gen Z and, of course, millennials, the largest generation ever. And they will be comprising 70 to 80% of the workforce. They will dictate how things are. And so employers will have to pay attention. And I, I predict in 20 years, the watershed moment is for how employers are adapting to all of the dynamics going on. What are some other things that you think we will see or are seeing besides just a strictly work from home, come to the office thing. I think that's kind of the headline that everybody talks about. You know, when we talk about office dress, you know, and I'm not talking showing up in a flip-flops and a t-shirt with jean shorts or whatever, but much more casual. I feel like, and maybe this is because I do a lot of sports stuff, coaches that used to be suit and tie. Now it's maybe a polo and nice you know, khakis and sneakers or whatever, but it is much more of a leisure feel to it. Do you think we are going to continue to see that in the workforce as an option, a door that'll be open that, yeah, wear what you want as long as it's appropriate, but we're not going to make you wear a suit and tie. What are some other things that maybe fall under that umbrella? Definitely the business casual attire is, is one element. 
what I think about, especially with all the work that I've done around the world with Gen Z and millennials, as I said, it's more in the area of development. I want an, I want to come to work for a company. So attire is one thing. I want to come and grow and learn. I'm happy to do my job and do the best that I can at my job description. And I want to see other parts of the business. I want to have a mentor. I want to develop my career and my skills that will keep me engaged, that will keep me motivated. So a lot of what I'm seeing is a big focus on what I'll call behaviors and mindsets become more and more important and companies getting clear about their values uh, as a business and how those align with the workforce. I, I think we're going to see a big evolution and expansion of that over the coming years. And this kind of goes with the earlier question I asked about kind of the watershed moment employees, employers, how important is it to, to have an actual stand and not just doing it reflexively because you, you enjoy the power, you have the ability to tell somebody what to do? Such a great question. My experience is context is both king and queen in this topic. The more context that we can provide, the more understanding that we build with, whether it's prospective employees or existing employees, the, the more intentional we are on, ma on making these decisions, the more impactful that we can be. And people need context, frankly, to be able to feel compelled or feel engaged. And as you're appropriately said, you know, because I said so, that does not work with the type of you know demographics that we're that we're talking about here. So context is king and queen. We end today's coronavirus daily with a story about solving one of the earliest mysteries of the COVID-19 illness. And that's the loss of the sense of smell, a symptom experienced by millions of people who caught the coronavirus. Even people with mild illnesses reported temporarily losing the ability to smell. And now researchers might be discovering why. It was a mystery for much of the two years of the pandemic because the neurons in the nose that are responsible for smell lack the receptors that coronavirus uses to enter cells. So if the virus couldn't touch those smell neurons, what was behind our nose malfunctions? New research out of Columbia, NYU, and UC Davis might have finally pinpointed the cause. Turns out the virus can get into cells that supports our olfactory systems, and that was enough to alter the ability to smell. Much like so many other symptoms from COVID, it's likely the body's intense immune response to the virus impacted the sense of smell. And that discovery caused for hope for treatments of long COVID symptoms, which were brought on not directly by the virus itself, but maybe that inflammatory freakout to fight it. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, the Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.